Welcome to the Base Path Podcast brought to you by New England Baseball Journal. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan. Our in-studio guest today is newly hired SNHU coach Chris Shank, who takes over New England's top Division II baseball program over the last decade. Chris, thanks for joining us in studio. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, congratulations. This is a big-time gig for you. I know you... So you've been at SNHU. You were there with Coach Luazo back in, like, 2009-ish? Yeah, we started in 2009, and I was there, I think, until 2016 with him. Yeah, and obviously the program's had a ton of success over the last 10 or 15 years, this kind of started, I guess the wheels started to kind of move on this coaching carousel this summer when Mike Gambino left for Penn State. Scott obviously followed him to Penn State. When did it kind of pop up on your radar that, uh, that it might be a job that you'd be interested in? Yeah, well, ever since I left, I mean, first and foremost, I, I love Southern New Hampshire. The people there are great. And it was always, I'd always wanted to get back to Southern New Hampshire at some point in some capacity. Um, and then obviously when the chips kind of started to fall, this summer and that opportunity presented itself, I was, I was definitely super excited about it. Did you have a sense that Scott was looking to move on from SNHU? Yeah, I think he's been there for, what, 13, 14 years or so at this point and has had tremendous success there. So knowing him on a personal level, he's, he's super competitive and he's done pretty much about everything he can do at the Division Two level, except for winning the last game of the year, which is obviously super hard to do. So I think he was ready for a new challenge and a new opportunity. Yeah. And I know, so you have been a, actually a co-head coach at Southern New Hampshire before, along with Pat Austin. Scott had left for a year. He was at Oklahoma or Nebraska? Yeah, correct. O- Oklahoma? Yeah. Okay. And so you have experience in that role. Were you surprised that Pat w- was deciding to leave after last season as well, Pat Austin? Yeah, I mean, Pat is a great dude. I think He's, 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 uh, he's got some things kind of going on right now that he just needs to pen- spend a little bit more time on professionally. But he's a great guy, and I think he's going to be kicking around a little bit still, be with the program a little bit. So Pat is, is awesome, and he's a huge asset to the program for sure. And what will you do about rounding out a staff that's kind of late in the game, I guess, late timing? Yeah, I mean, we don't want to rush anything. We, we have a few guys that we're talking to right now we're getting really close on. But I want to make sure I get the right people in there and not rush. We have a couple more weeks before school starts. So really just spend some time, make sure it's the right people. It's going to be the right fit for the program to kind of move forward with. Yeah. I was talking to Todd Interdonato, the new BC coach a few weeks ago, and he was saying the same thing. Like that's a really important decision that you'll make when you're rounding out your staff. Cause those in terms of recruiting and just being on the same page as you, you really want to kind of take your time and make sure you get that right. How important is that lead assistant who's going to be doing a lot of the recruiting too. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, you spend so much time with your assistant coaches and you need to really make sure they have same same type of beliefs and philosophies that you have and, and also going to mesh really well with the team and the, and the community. I think that's super important. So we want to spend some time, make sure we identify the right people and get them in there. So you've been at Eastern Nazarene now for, what is it, four years? Correct. And before there, you were at New England College. So you've been at the D3 level as a head coach. You, like I said, you do have the one experience, one year of experience as a co-head coach at Southern New Hampshire. How is the recruiting different? Because now you have a little bit of mo- more money to play with and some more resources at the D2 level. Yeah, I think I think it is going to be a, a big change at New England College, and then obviously at Eastern Naz and and a lot of the smaller Division three institutions. You're you're casting a much bigger net and kind of throwing it out there and seeing what fits and how you can build your program that way. 
At Southern New Hampshire, it's going to be a lot more of a targeted approach of trying to identify the best players in the region and, and letting them know that we have a lot of interest in them and getting them to campus and, and hopefully showing them what we're all about. Yeah, you're starting to see some D2 and D3 commitments in the class of 2024. Is that something, is that a top priority, like the first thing you need to jump on after rounding out your staff, you think? Yeah, I think the staff is the first and foremost thing that we're paying attention to right now. And then obviously just assuring the 2023s that are coming in right now that, hey, we're here and we're going to be here to support you and everything is going to keep keep moving forward and we're going to be okay. And then as soon as we kind of get in there, first official day is on Monday next week, we'll we'll start that process of getting the 24s on campus. I know that we have a handful of commits at this point already, but just making sure that we're reaching out to those guys and just assuring them that this is still going to be a really good place for them. Yeah, you got to secure those guys who are already committed. And then in terms of attracting new recruits and new commitments and things like that, what are you expecting for a recruiting strategy? Southern New Hampshire has always been a little bit different in that it's not so specific, like re- geographically regional. They've gotten some players from a little bit outside the region. How do you expect your recruiting to go? Yeah, I mean, we want to do a good job in the region first and foremost. Southern New Hampshire, from from what Scott and his staff has done over the course of the last decade plus, has done a great job of attracting really good local talent. But as you indicated, just they, they're able to get guys outside of the region as well. So... There's just a ton of good players, New Jersey, the tri-state area, New England. That's where we're going to hammer it pretty much in that area. But at the same time, even at NEC and at ENC, we had some guys that were out of region that were really good for us too. And I think it today's day and age with ever since kind of COVID hit, guys are marketing themselves so much more online and you can you can access their videos and stuff too. So it's a little bit easier to kind of attract some of that talent. Sometimes those guys from Florida or California don't necessarily want to come up to New England to play, but you know, we've had some really good success historically at the programs I've been at pulling some guys from Florida too that have been game changers for us. So yeah, the video is a big piece now, and it's sometimes it's tough. Like, you'll see, sometimes I've heard coaches say, like, you'll see some guy do a pull-down, and it's, like, 95 miles an hour, and everybody's like, that doesn't really translate to anything that we want to see. What are you looking for in those recruiting videos, or what do you what do you want to see from your recruits? Yeah, I, I think it's definitely easier to evaluate pitchers on, on video. The gun doesn't lie. Obviously, we want guys that are going to be able to compete and throw strikes, and but hitters, I like to see a little bit more in-game actions, watch how their body moves, watch how they are in the field defensively. Pitchers is a little bit easier to evaluate over, over video. So, But you know, at the end of the day, we're looking for athletes. I think that's really what it comes down to, guys that can play multiple positions, guys that are multi-sport athletes in high school, because I think that just helps build athleticism that will translate to the college baseball game as well. So, yeah, I, th- I, think, I think at the end of the day, we're looking just for athletes. We'll, we'll get some shortstops. We'll get some center fielders that if they don't stick at shortstop at the collegiate level, if they can play short, they can probably play second base too. So. Oh, sure, yeah. That, I was somebody, I think it was, I can't even remember who it was, was saying, yeah, they recruit all shortstops and pitchers, and then every, they have the flexibility to move. You said in terms of a multi-sport athlete, do you ever go look at guys when they're playing other sports just to see the way they compete or the way they embrace their roles? Yeah, I mean, I like I like guys that are tough. Those hockey players, those football guys are really important, some wrestlers. I think on my previous stops, like I said, it's been a little bit more of a of a blanket approach, so we're not necessarily diving as deep as we might do at Southern New Hampshire to kind of see how they face adversity, see how tough they are, those type of things at this level, but It's really important to me. I remember Coach King, when I was at Franklin Pierce, when he was recruiting me, he would come to my basketball games at at Oakmont High School. And 
number one, I think he wanted to see how I was as far as an athlete. And then number two, it showed me that he cared a lot because nobody else was doing that. So I think it's really important that that prospective student athletes know that you care, you know, that you're invested in them. And it's more than just, hey, what can you do for me on the field? So it. How did you end up at Southern New Hampshire from Franklin Pierce? Aren't they like arch rivals? Or well, Scott got the job in 2009, and I think at that point I was I just finished up my playing career, and I was working at Extra Innings in Watertown as the general manager. And really, I was still in baseball, but I really wasn't in baseball at that point because that it wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing for a career. But it, it paid the bills at that point, and he gave me a call and said, "Hey, I got the job at SNU. Do you want to come up and help me out on staff?" And so I did, and that's kind of that's kind of how that that started that's amazing do do, what would you attribute the success under scott to like how did he keep that program competing for a national championship for so long so many years yeah i mean honestly scott took the mold from coach king we we were really lucky when we were in our playing career and got to play for coach that blueprint is pretty much what he used at southern new hampshire and and something that i'm going to continue and that i've used at at enc and at nec as well you just want to try to identify the best talent you possibly can. And I think what Scott did when he got the job at Southern New Hampshire was, okay, what type of players does Franklin Pierce have? And in order for us to beat them, which was arguably the best team in the region at that point in time, we need to get just as good as players, if not better, to be able to compete. So that's how he identified those players. And then once you get those players, you need to get them into the school, and then you need to build them up, right? Develop them, make them become a better better player, better person holistically kind of from the ground up. What is the best way? Like, what is the most development you see? Is it like a lot of these guys now are doing strength programs a little bit earlier in high school? Like, what is it that guys that get on college campuses need to work on the most that in your experience? Yeah, I think the biggest difference that from high school to the college level in terms of being able to compete and be ready right away is, is obviously their physicality. I think a lot of guys at 17 years old are just starting to maybe get in the gym in high school. They're typically one of the best players on their high school team. So big fish, small pond. But when you get to the college level, especially the elite programs, and and you see how hard those guys work in the gym, it forces them to kind of raise their game. So if you want to compete at an elite school as a freshman, you need to be in the gym. You need to be working hard right away. That's To me, that's the biggest difference. So will you keep the same strength coach that Scott had or yeah Sean Sean is there I haven't got an opportunity yet to actually meet him but from what I've heard he's he's amazing he he worked at the University of Florida with the football team and so he's he's totally first class and does a great job with our guys okay yeah so that that brings up like what is the timeline like so you got you probably interviewed it for it after Scott left you got hired about a week ago now, and then, so how does it work in terms of, like, do you, are you reporting there immediately, or is there a transition process? Yeah, there's a little transition process. I mean, my first official start date is going to be this Monday coming up, but at the same time, there's some guys that we've been working on, so I'm, I'm reaching out to those guys, letting them know that I'm here, and at, answering any questions as far as the transition goes for them, but the first official start date will be on Monday. Did you have any recruits who have been like, hey, I'm going to open my search again because of the coaching change? Not yet. Not that I've been notified of, so really fortunate of that. How does that usually happen? Do they just announce it on Twitter that they're decommitting, or do they call you? Or I honestly haven't been through that before, oh, so really? this is it'll be new to me. That This is the first time I'm going into a job so close to the beginning of the season. 
and more of a high profile job where there's scholarship money involved and things like that. So at, at this point, we've been really lucky as far as not having any decommits. And at Eastern NAS and also at New England College, you had win- really successful winning records. How did you turn those programs into quality D3 competing for conference championships, those type of programs? Yeah, I think it first starts with the administration just being supportive. At NEC and ENC, we were both both similar institutions as far as academic requirements. We were able to get a lot of guys in there and compete right away. Um, had really, really good facilities at NEC as far as we had a field house, a couple batting cages, a turf field that we were able to practice on. So there was it was kind of an under an undervalued or under-identified jewel. So we're able to get guys in there and, and just kind of put them to work and just let them know, kind of taking the mold that we had at Pearson at SNU when I was an assistant of, we want guys that are going to be, going to compete, that are going to work hard and not just partake in Division Three baseball. Like our goal at that point when I got the job at NEC was UMass Boston, the Southern Mains, the Wheatons, the Babsons. Those are the teams that we needed to identify what type of players they were getting and, and try to go out there and convince these guys to come into NEC. And opportunity was a big sell at that point because I think the year before I got there, they were 7-25. and 25 And being able to come in here and compete for a spot right away was intriguing to a lot of guys. Yeah, for sure. Now, your playing career, so you played at Franklin Pierce and then you played professionally after that. What was your draft experience like coming from a D2 program? Yeah, I mean, obviously getting drafted was a, a lifelong dream of mine as a baseball player, as it is any any five-year-old boy, right, growing up. And, and that was awesome coming from Franklin Pierce. I mean, I think when I went to Pierce, I guess I always had that vision and that dream, but how much of a reality it was, I wasn't quite certain until my junior year. And that's really when I started to adopt the gym a lot as far as getting in there making that part of my daily routine, my habits. And I, I worked really hard in the off season from November to January, and I put four or five miles an hour on my fastball and, and became a prospect because of that. So, But the experience was great. I mean, it was 2002. It was the Moneyball draft, and I ended up back in, back in 2002. That was 20, 21 years ago, so they didn't broadcast it or anything. It was all done over the computer, and I remember they had 22 rounds the first day didn't get picked. I knew I was probably going to be like 15 to 25 in that range. At least that's what they were telling me. And the next day, the first round, my computer froze. And five seconds later, I got a phone call from Tom Clark, the scout for the Oakland A's at that point. And he just asked me, hey, man, do you still want to play pro ball? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Let's do this. So it was a great experience and something that I'll obviously never forget. That's awesome. So that so Billy Bean was the GM of the A's back then. D- did you did he explain like here is what we see in you? This is what we really like. Yeah, I mean not not to me personally. I mean I think I think Billy had a little bit more conversations probably with the first through fifth rounders than the twenty third rounder. But <laughs> right. I think at that point with the Moneyball draft, they were looking they were looking for guys that competed really well, threw a lot of strikes, and they were kind of starting to dive into the analytical part of things for sure. So. And what was your fastball velocity like back then? It's not as good as guys now. I think I was pretty much like an 88 to 92 guy, maybe once in a while pop a 93. But I was more of a command and control pitcher. I could throw four pitches for strikes and and pretty much any count. So I think eventually we're probably going to start to get back to that a little bit. Everybody now throws 100 miles an hour in the big leagues. That's guys can time a jet engine so if that's all you have it's going to be really you're going to have a hard time so yeah guys are going to start squaring that up right 
So you played for three years in the Oakland A's organization, is that right? Yeah, 2002 through 2000. I got released in 2005, so. Okay, yeah. And it, I'm looking at the numbers. They're pretty good. It's like 381 ERA professionally, 12 and 12 record. Was it an injury or like what, what kind of derailed your professional career? No, I think it just was one of those things. It's a numbers game. I, I had a decent career statistically, but I really wasn't doing anything to like stand out. I think in 2004, I had I had a really good year. I think I was, I think maybe like a 3-9 and I pitched a bunch of innings in, in high A and I was really hopeful that I was going to get a promotion to go to double A at that point. And I thought I was right on the cusp and it never happened. And I probably, on hindsight, I guess it's 2020, right? Like I, I think that I wish I would have worked a little bit harder when I was there. Getting drafted was obviously a huge goal, but that wasn't the end goal. I don't think I probably took it as serious as I probably needed to as far as like the gym and my conditioning and my nutrition and my sleep. And But it's tough. It's a, that, that was five, four or five years being away from home. And at Franklin Pierce, I was 30 minutes from my house, so my family was right there. And all of a sudden you get drafted and they, they send you on a flight to Vancouver, British Columbia, and go get them, kid. And that's so that was... A little bit of a challenge, but I, I think overall, I just wish I would have probably did a little bit more because you only get one shot at it when you do. And I think I probably could have done a little bit more with my opportunity. You think it was more that you just didn't think there was going to be a path to the big leagues for you that you didn't work hard? Or was it more you were just a little bit like homesick and unhappy? I, I, I Probably a combination of both. Like I think I, I wouldn't say that I was homesick. I just it's just hard. Like I, I don't think I did anything like I did everything well. I didn't do anything exceptional. And I mm-hmm. think if you need to get to the big leagues there, they're looking for guys that have plus fastball velo, first and foremost. They're looking at projectability. They're looking at your stats, obviously. But so much of baseball, as far as even in the college game and in the professional game, is what's your projectability? Like, where are you going to be? Maybe not now, but where are you going to be two, three years from now? And I'm a six-foot stock right-handed pitcher that was 195 pounds, and I'm probably not going to throw much harder than 88 to 92, 93. So what I was was what I was, and I think that the organization would probably take a big, a bigger gamble on a guy that's maybe 6'5 and like 205 and has a whippy arm, and so that wasn't me. But. Yeah. Did you have, ever have like that welcome to professional baseball moment where like somebody hit it 450 feet off you or anything like that? Yeah, I, I actually kind of did. I mean, <clears throat> I started off my pro career really great. Like I threw 30 and a third scoreless innings to start my pro career in Vancouver. So that year was great. And it was kind of just a crazy situation where nobody touched the plate on me. But that following year, I went to low A and I was playing for the Kane County Cougars and we were playing up in Milwaukee, in Beloit, Wisconsin. And I faced Prince Fielder. And Prince took me about 450 to right field and then proceeded to have some choice words for me going around the bases and stuff. So that was, that was interesting. But it was, that was my welcome to pro ball moment for sure. Why was he chirping around the bases? I, I just think he was 18 years old and he was a first rounder and stuff. And I, I don't think it was anything directed to me direct, directly. I think it was just him just letting him know, letting everybody know that he's Prince Fielder and he's here. And so that was interesting. Just the way he was yeah. doing it at the time. Yeah. yeah. And then, so what was it like? Like, what was the day like when you made, when you realized like, hey, baseball's no, no longer an option for me. What am I going to do now? Yeah. I mean, obviously the day I got released was super tough. It was really tough, but I think, it was, it was kind of a blessing and a, and, a, and a curse at the same time. It was really hard for me going through it at the time, but what allowed me to kind of get back home, I played a couple of years in Worcester, 
with the tornadoes. And at that point in time, my one of my other good friends from Franklin Pierce, Mike Callahan, was the head coach at WPI, and he invited me to come on staff. And that kind of got – I would help out at Franklin Pierce in the offseason while I was playing at with Oakland. But this was like my, my first real – like coaching experience with, at WPI. So that kind of got my foot in the door there. And I just realized that I loved helping kids and, and developing them and taking a little bit of my knowledge that I gained at Franklin Pearson, obviously with Oakland, and just giving back a little bit. So so you never had that post-playing. Like I've t- talked to some guys who played professionally, and then once it kind of ends for them, they're, they had to get away for a couple of years, and they say baseball might not be in my future anymore. Yeah, no, I mean, I love it too much. I can't, I can't stay away from it. I mean, I eat, sleep, breathe this. This is, this is what I do. Yeah. Well, back to Southern New Hampshire, is there anything that you're planning like to put your own stamp on the program that would be a little bit different from the way Scott did it? Yeah, it's funny because that was pretty much the same question that I got asked in, a, in the interview process. And it's really hard to go against anything that Scott did and having the amount of success that Southern New Hampshire's had in the last 10 years. I, I do think that things are going to be really similar as far as how we go about our business there. First, first off, Scott and I are super tight. like We're best friends and we played at Pierce together and we coached obviously together at SNU for eight years. So we see eye to eye in a lot of things as far as recruiting and the players that we're looking that we're looking for and developing. So I'm sure there'll be things that are different, but I think the nuts and bolts and meats and potato of things are going to remain the same for sure. Yeah. And they're competing for national championships almost every year. So yeah, there's not much you would think about changing. What was the furthest they went when you were there? And as, as an assistant, did they ever go to the College World yeah. Series? So 2012 was the first year we went to the College World Series. And that we, we won the first game. Tim Flight was on the mound. And I actually had to fly home after that game because my son was being born. Oh, wow. So yeah, he didn't end up getting born for another like four or five days after I came home. But Scott was like, dude, you need to get home. <laughs> like, I'm, not, I'm not wearing this one on the shoulder for Mary if you're missing your first kid's birth right now. So right. I got home and obviously witnessed Grayson being born and stuff, which was obviously amazing and something I'll never forget. But I wasn't able to be down there for the remaining couple of games with them at that point. So. Wow. What is that atmosphere like at a College World Series? It's great. I mean, I went down the last two years to support SNU and su- support Scott and just see the the environment down there. And it's intense. I mean, the level of baseball at, at that level, the, the best teams in the country combined for a national championship is very intense. There was a lefty from North Georgia throwing last year that was 94-97 from the left side. And Mike LaRocca, who was our first baseman, Southern New Hampshire's first baseman at that time, hit a huge pull side bomb off a slider that was off the plate. And I just remember sitting in the stands just saying, wow, that's that was one of the best swings that I've ever seen in my life at any level. So just the quality of baseball that gets played at the elite Division II level is is unbelievable. Yeah. I remember talking to Scott a few times over the years about the state of the facilities at Sanu, and there was kind of a transition period a few years ago. What is it like now? Is there, what is, where is the home field? Where, where are you guys, are you, are you satisfied with it right now? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, like I think James Gassman, who is our associate athletic director that handles all the facilities, does an amazing job with his team, the field. It's called Penway. So it's it's amazing. Like it's one of the best natural services in, in New England, if not the best. So many schools are, are going to artificial turf now, which is understandable. But there's something about playing on a natural surface field too that just feels like baseball. And I think if you have the opportunity to get up to southern New Hampshire and see the facilities, the baseball field, the stadium, our our indoor field house, our cages, it's it's really top notch. Oh, that's awesome. 
All right. Well, are you up for sticking around for a three up, three at, three down segment? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. This is kind of our general interest baseball questions, stuff that helped you fall in love with the sport. So let's go to our producer, David Yaz, for three up, three down. Three up, three down. In love with the sport. Producer Dave is all about love, so you come to the right place, Dan. <laughs> and uh, we, as usual, three up, three down. We have three questions for both Coach and Dan to, to answer. They have not been informed what these questions are. They have been sealed in a package of old tops baseball cards with the gum in there, too. All right, number one. And, Coach, since you're the guest, you get to go first. Bunting used to be a bigger part of baseball than it is now. Is bunting still a valuable tool, your pro or con bunting. Give us your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I don't typically bunt a ton. We try to recruit a lot of athletes that can steal bases. I think it's I think it's very important that you can still do it, yes, but there's a lot of chances that guys get to put bunts down and, and they're not successful. So I don't want to just give teams outs, but at the same time, you need to have a few guys on your roster that you can get a bunt down in a certain situation for sure. Do you think you'll have any players this season that will bunt for base hits? Or yeah, coming, and, yeah, bunting and, for base hit is a little bit different story. If you have a guy that you know runs a six five and he can put the ball down, that that's that's a little. I'm more apt to bunt for hits than I am in sacrifice situations. Dan, pro or con bunting or what? I used to hate it when I was playing baseball. Like if I I was a little bit undersized, especially like when I was ten playing in with ten to twelve year olds, I would get the bunt sign a lot and just be like, oh, not again. <laughs> and yeah, I think the giving other teams outs thing has kind of taken over in the last 20 years where there's not as much base stealing, not as much moving runners over. But I think there's a, a place for it for sure. If you get a situation where there's a guy on first and nobody out late in a tie ball game or something and you just need to get a guy to second so a base hit will win the game. I think there's still a place for that. But yeah, I understand that it's not as prevalent as it was 10, 15 years ago. Mm. Blame Billy Bean, the aforementioned Billy Bean. Yes. <laughs> Question number two, Dan, you get to go first. All right. Rank the following in terms of how much fun you think they are. Stickball, wiffle ball, softball. Wiffle ball is the best, I would say, <laughs> number one. I haven't played much stickball, but I would say probably softball two, stickball three. Softball, I don't know. Like Sometimes they have rules that you can only hit a certain number of home runs <laughs> per inning, so then you're just trying to kind of like place the ball, hit the ball like in the gaps or like short of the outfield. And so I don't always like that part of it, but wiffle ball, I love. I what's love playing your, wiffle ball. What's your command like as a wiffle ball pitcher? I don't really have a ton of pitches. I have like a, a pretty hard ball that breaks a little bit down and to the left, I'm right-handed. And then I can have, I can like slow it down and put a lot of spin on it, but I'm a better hitter than pitcher in wiffle ball. Coach, your thoughts? Stick yeah. ball, wiffle ball, softball. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go stick ball first. Mm. I think it builds hand-eye coordination really well, mm -hmm. and you can hit some bombs in stick ball too because <laughs> that, that ball will travel, mm -hmm. which is nice. Wiffle ball, I'll probably go two, mm. just because that's the all-American backyard game, right? Sure. Bar barbecue, hot dogs, hamburgers. Mm. Get the kids together, kids from the neighborhood. So wiffle ball definitely two. I'm gonna go softball three. Probably something that a little bit more of the, as far as from a, a male perspective, probably a little bit older guys, guys that have been around a little bit more, want to get out on a Saturday, Sunday, hit some bombs. So. Yeah. I, I remember the Red Sox used to have those teams, big softball players, like one through nine in the batting order. It was just slow guys <laughs> that could hit home runs. Jack Clark, Tony Armas, yeah. Tony Perez at the end of his career, sure. Yeah. We, we cornered the market in those. I think softball must have been invented by a bunch of overweight white guys in their 50s it's just a guess final question for three up three down coach we'll start with you 
What is the best nickname in baseball history? Oh, I mean, you got to go with the babe, right? I mean, to me, I mean, that's that's pretty much, I mean, he's did everything. He was obviously Shohei today, but I'm going to go with the babe for sure. I forget why he was called babe. I'll have to look that up. Dan, get our research department on that. Yeah. Coach, do you ever have a nickname or do now? No. (laughs) Just Shank. All right, well, yeah, <laughs> you're like me. I'm Yaz, no matter what. It's my name, and it's a built-in nickname. Shank is like that. Dan, nicknames. I used to like the Ryan Express for Nolan Ryan. It just felt like when he was on the mound, it was like a train coming at the batters at all times because he was even when he was like 45 years old, he was still throwing 98. I like Nolan Ryan and the Ryan Express. Apparently, Babe Ruth was got the nickname Babe when a sports writer referred to him as one of the Dunn's Babes for the, I don't know who Dunn was. He was, he was a large man. So I don't know, maybe there's still a little mystery attached to that. Did you ever have a nickname, Dan, whether playing ball or not? Not re- like Goot, I guess, is like the beginning of my last name. That's yeah. not bad. Yeah. I, I was... could see that on the back of a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> three up, three down. That concludes. Congratulations. You both passed with flying colors and we have some lemonade and big league chew for you on the way out so back to you dan awesome so thank you to chris shank for joining us on the base path podcast rate review subscribe to the base path podcast on your preferred platform thanks to our producer david yaz the base path podcast is a siemens media production